Hello. Welcome to the eighth installment of Snooping Cap Rock. In the last segment, Sandra had conversations with the two spouses of the pair that went missing from Paula's workplace. Feeling vulnerable due to an attack by Tansy and Beth, she checked into a hotel in an effort to evade them. In this reading, she will get her answers about the couple who disappeared, and she will realize that her friends are throwing her a surprise birthday party. The next morning, before the sun comes up, and before most people are out of bed, I bundle up, grab the room key and my phone, and go for a run in the neighborhood behind the hotel. Determined to loosen up the stiffness in my side, I start out slowly. The pain is there, but not as sharp as it was yesterday. The wind has stopped, leaving the air so crisp and clean that it burns my throat. Overhead, the clear sky is decorated with fading stars. This part of town is unfamiliar to me. Because it's so near an industrialized zone, I fear it's going to be rough, maybe scary. But as I put distance between myself and the highway, it becomes apparent that my expectation is off. Yes, the houses are older, they're structure prone toward functionality rather than charm, but the flat lots are large and the illumination from the street lamps creates elegant shadows of the bare trees and rooftops. If not for the percussion of my footfalls, the silence would be surreal. Here and there a light shines through a window. Reluctant to get lost in this unknown sector, I pay attention to the names of the streets so I can retrace the route. It's a nice surprise to come upon the intersection of James and Harold. Wendy lives on Harold, but I can't remember the house number. I turn left. Wendy's Nissan is in the driveway of a single-story square house. The street number is painted on the curb, 1703. A high-wattage bulb shines from the porch, washing the entire front yard in glaring light. A chain-length fence four feet in height marks the boundary. This and the bright light offer a barrier that I'd just as soon not breach. A softer light glows from the back. I follow the driveway to the rear of the house where there is no fence at all. Odd to have a security light and a fence in front and then to be so wide open and unprotected in the back. Gazing through the window, I'm presented with a view of the kitchen. Every surface is covered. Cereal boxes, sugar and tea containers, peanut butter, lunch boxes, pot holders, bread, dish towels, utensils. Does this woman never put anything away? Just looking at her messy counter makes me feel dizzy and claustrophobic. Centered in the light from the overhead fixture, she slumps at the table in the adjacent dining area. Wearing a pink housecoat with her orange hair spurting wildly from her head, she lacks her usual vitality. Just like the counters, the table is also cluttered, but this disorder is caused by paperwork. Spread out before her are several stacks of paper, envelopes, a checkbook, and a pen. She lifts a piece of paper, studies it thoughtfully, puts it back where she got it. What an old-fashioned way to pay bills. Why hasn't she set up automatic payment? Because she has to be that tight with money, that's why. Because what I'm looking at isn't her paying her bills, it's her deciding which ones to pay and which ones can wait. This is what comes from setting yourself up as a life coach to no one instead of getting a real job. Bring, bring! My phone! The noise makes me jump. My heart clenches and I leap back, but not before seeing Wendy's startled expression as she looks up. As I flee, I rip off my gloves and work my phone loose from the pocket of my form-fitting pants. Hello? I answer as I run. Behind me, I hear her shout, I saw you, Sandra Furlow, I saw you. What's going on? It's my mother. Out for my morning run, I tell her. Why are you calling so early? My adrenaline's pumping. I'm an hour ahead, she says. It's not that early. It's six o'clock, I inform her. Seven o'clock where I am, she replies. Why are you huffing like that? I told you, I say. You caught me during my run. Something that's got you breathing like a locomotive can't be healthy for you, she says. Why did you say you called? I ask. Just checking in, she answers. How's Edgar? Fine, I tell her. 
Your birthday's next weekend, she says. Do you have any plans? Do you want us to send you something special from the road? I haven't thought about it, I respond. What constitutes something special from the road, I wonder? I'll be 31, an inauspicious year. We talk about nothing until I arrive back at the hotel, at which time I bring the call to an end and get ready for that day. I think I'd better skip a grief this week. An insignificant but confusing incident occurs after I deposit Edgar and pick up my coat at the house. I'm on my way to work, waiting at the light on Coogan, when I see Janine and Carol come out of Barry's breakfast bar together. Walking side by side, their coat collars turned up against the cold. They stop for a few seconds on the sidewalk in front of the restaurant. I can see their breath. Janine is a work friend, and Carol is an addiction friend. To see the two of them in conversation is disconcerting and inexplicable. The light turns green. I watch in my rearview mirror as the two of them get in their separate cars. The only thing they have in common is me. I file it away to be examined later. Hazel is already at work when I get there. I find her in the break room, putting her purse away. You're early, I tell her. Her being here before me is unusual. Just running a little ahead of schedule this morning, she explains. How's your dad? I ask, removing my gloves and unbuttoning my coat. Let me ask you something. Her serious tone draws my attention. Do you think I'm using him as an excuse not to live my life? What makes you think you're not living? I respond. You breathe, you shop, you work, you play bridge, you sing in the church choir. If it weren't for him, I'd be free, she says. I could move to a new town, live in a modern house. But Hazel, you love your house. Are you thinking about putting him in a home? Yesterday, when I got home, he'd opened every can in the cupboard. They were all just sitting on the counter, open. That's not good, I reply. How's the search for a caregiver going? In-home help is costly, she tells me, and, from the experience I've had so far, undependable. I don't know what she wants me to say, or if she wants me to say anything. Her gloomy mood stems from the conversation I overheard on Saturday morning. I can see how she might feel that she's living in a trap of her own making. What life would she be living now if she'd left this town long ago? As I settle into my workspace for the day, Joe Epps enters the waiting room. Dressed in a poorly pressed suit, he's back on the job after frittering away the weekend. You questioned Manny Vasquez again? Indignant and accusatory, he approaches the patient window and glares. Not about his father's murder, I tell him. Manny was giving Paula Mercer money, and I wanted to know why. Did you find out? He asks. Something to do with a family issue, I reply. He was less than forthright. You sure are snoopy, Joe says. I know things you don't, I comment. Educate me a smarmy phrase accompanied by a smarmy grin. Hector Vasquez's body was dropped over the fence from one of the VMF's ladder trucks, I say, which puts Paula and Tansy and their friend Beth right in the middle of it. And from there, it's not too far a leap to think that whoever let the wolves out also did it from the elevated safety of a ladder truck. Really, he responds, looking bored. Any evidence of this? Tire tracks. I pull out my cell, show him the photos. Maybe you should actually do some detecting, detective. He gives a double tap on the counter, turns, and walks out the door. Also, I tell the empty waiting room, I'm pretty sure Guy and Vera's bodies are in the trunk of one of those junked cars at the VMF. It's absurd to base my suspicion on nothing more than Paula's nervous glance toward the back corner of the facility, but it feels good to have voiced it, as though saying it aloud gives it credibility. And now that I've put the notion out into the world, I'm compelled to follow up on it. During our lunch hour stairwalk, a hurtful incident occurs. Janine and I are walking together. I want to ask her how she knows Carol, but she prevents it by bringing up Joe. So, I saw Joe Epps came to see you again, she says. What's really going on between you two? 
Ah, he's miffed that I broke into the VMF and got evidence, I tell her. The man's a waste of a detective badge. He's got the hots for you, she huffs, out of breath after only two flights. Mark my words, he's fixing to ask you out. Honestly, Janine, enough is enough. I'm not couple material. I will never date anyone. I've grown a little loud, but at this point, my frustration is understandable. I will never be involved in an intimate relationship. What is it with people that they can't just accept me the way I am? Will you please, please just let it go? Is it my fault I want you to live a full life? She asks. After that, we are silent. Behind us, two other stairwalkers, Leslie and Jade, are discussing their plans for the weekend. I'm desperate to get my hair trimmed, Leslie says, only I don't know when I'll fit it in. Brady's out of town, so I've got the kids both days, and then there's the thing at the CCC on Saturday afternoon. Shh! This from Jade. Then Janine turns and sends Leslie an admonishing glare, and this is all it takes for me to realize that something's going on at the CCC on Saturday, and that, whatever it is, I'm not meant to know about it. Information is being deliberately withheld. I'm not wanted. When I get off work, I half expect to be waylaid in the parking garage by Beth and Tansy. I rush to my car, looking over my shoulder. I hate being intimidated, especially by such losers. I can't afford to stay at the Candle Rock indefinitely, but because I need sleep and evil people know where I live, I decide to spring for another night. Once again, I gather the inconvenient cat and his paraphernalia from my house, tense and hurried the whole time I'm there, and go to the hotel and settle in. This night, it's room 244. Then, after assuring Edgar that I'll be back soon, I return to my car and head to the CCC. I turn into the lot and cruise by the cars parked there, eight of them, more cars than the last time I drove by on a Monday night. The number of victimized women is growing. Soon, there'll be a full-fledged group legitimately meeting here on a night when no one is supposed to meet here. I pull into a space, upset. It's just not right that they're in there, not without going through the channels. They had to get permission from someone, and I'm wondering who. As I sit there, Wendy's Nissan pulls into the vacant space a couple of cars over. I'm not surprised to see her. It makes sense that she'd maneuver her way into involvement with this group of vulnerable women. They're chum to Wendy, who likes to tell people how to do things better and how to be stronger. And classic Wendy, she's ten minutes late. She gathers her things, the briefcase and pashmina, which she wraps around her shoulders as she heads into the building. At first, my mind is on the women inside. The thought of them sitting in the chair circle, crying and reliving their horrors, is depressing. This is the last thing I want to think about. So I examine all the disturbing situations that have surfaced lately. Ham's unhappiness, Hazel's angst, the way Janine is always trying to get me to go out with some guy, zoo animals being turned loose, my house alarm going off, my upcoming birthday, which I've forgotten until Mom mentioned, and the notion of my birthday brings a burst of realization. Having become so distracted that I forgot my birthday, I haven't been paying attention. But when people start shushing each other, and friends who don't know each other are seen having breakfast together, well, chances are, a surprise party is in the offing. Well, well, well. Now that I know what's going on, I'll keep a keener eye on the things that are happening around me. While part of me is curious about how the meeting inside is going, there's another portion of my mind that knows the exact routine. Someone tells a terrible tale, tears are shed, and Wendy offers a banality. In this case, I don't need to see it to know it. I stop by the grocery store. For dinner, a quarter of a rotisserie cooked chicken and a tomato. When I leave the store, I notice a Kia parked two rows over. Beth drives a Kia. When I pull out, so does the Kia. It follows me for a while, keeping an even distance. It's dark out, and I'm not certain it's her, so I stay on the main streets, traveling from intersection to intersection, keeping my eye on the rearview mirror. 
After a while, growing weary and hungry, I turn into a residential area, douse my lights, and pull way up into a driveway. The Kia cruises by on the street. I wait a few seconds, reverse out, and head to the hotel. The next day, I test my suspicion concerning the birthday party. I'm thinking about going out of town this weekend, I tell Hazel. Why in the world would you do that? She raises a brow, turns away, and feigns nonchalance. She reaches for a stapler she doesn't need, the tremor in her fingers betraying her unease. She didn't anticipate the need to keep me in town, and because the knowledge has come to her, the responsibility is hers, and it's immediate. A change of scenery, I reply. I don't know what's gotten into you lately, she comments. First you take up fishing, and now you're leaving town for no reason. Maybe I'll go to Dallas and shop, I say, just to have some different stores to look at but I was going to ask for your help on Saturday. It's a clever response. She knows I cannot say no when someone needs a favor. Help with what, I ask. I'm getting my car serviced, and you know how they'll say it'll take two hours, and it ends up taking four. I was hoping you'd give me a ride to and from. It's a lame ploy, but it tells me what I want to know. Okay, I say. I can do that. At possession obsessions that evening, the cold doesn't keep us from our cigarette break. While we're huddled together for warmth, I tell my friends what Beth and Tansy did to me on Sunday. This is getting out of hand, Bill says, sounding horrified. First Paula punches you, and now Beth and Tansy attack you. You need to talk to the police. This from Karen, whose faith in the Caprock PD is incomprehensible. Wendy says she caught you looking through her window yesterday morning, Donald says. If he wanted to discuss it with me, I'd have preferred that he do it privately. I don't know what you're talking about, I reply. My chattering teeth mask my resentment. All I'm saying is, he tells me, if you didn't spy and go where you shouldn't, you wouldn't attract the attention of people you don't want to attract the attention of. This is more words than Donald usually strings together. Certainly, he's never been so critical. I wonder if this is Wendy's influence. I can just hear her telling him he should become more involved and more communicative. I wonder if he's told her why he's in the group. He's got a point, Pete says, and now they're just making me mad. Are you staging an impromptu intervention, I ask, because we all know how that's going to go, so you might as well not bother. There's a moment of silence as they register my degree of irascibility. Still, Karen says, you've made yourself a target. If you don't call the police, I will. Okay, I'll call them, I reply, knowing that I won't, but it doesn't hurt to say what she wants to hear. During the rest of the session, while Mabel talks about buying a new house and Joan rhapsodizes about a website where everything in the world is on sale, I dwell on my current situation. Though I've grown fond of the cozy, efficient hotel room where everything I need is close by and the double lock on the door is sturdy, this is the last night I can afford to spend there. I've got to bring this to a close. And the only way to do that is to find the bodies of Gaiman Chomiak and Vera Penny, which means going back into the VMF. At Smokers on Wednesday night, as we gather around the coffee maker and hold out our cups for a shot of whiskey, I ask if anybody knows anything about the VMF. You mean the place where the city keeps the trucks and stuff? This query's from Amy, who's been overly nice to me ever since I caught her with an e-cig. Yes, I tell her. I have reason to believe that the bodies of Guy Chomiak and Vera Penny are in there. The reactions are all a form of derision, a snort, a cough, a grunt. Wendell outright laughs. In the other groups, when we take our breaks across the street, expressions are imperceptible on account of the darkness, allowing for wishful extrapolation. But when we're inside like this, every emotion is fully illuminated. Their obvious disdain is disappointing and unforeseen. Of all the groups, this one is the most adventurous, or at least the most open-minded. I'm having a hard time working up the courage to go into the VMF by myself, and my hope is that I can talk a couple of the smokers into accompanying me. 
That couple that ran off together last year? Lurleen asks. It's always something crazy with you, Marv says. Why can't you ever just accept that a thing is what it is? What does that even mean? I ask. It means that you don't know those people and you have no reason to care about them, he replies. But you need something to keep you busy and distracted, so you make up this big dramatic tale. It's true, Wendell says. You possess an incredibly overactive imagination. All I'm saying is, it's an easy enough thing to check out, I inform, ignoring their baseless insults in order to maintain focus on my plan. You're trying to get us to break into a city facility with you, Eve states. Her shock is feigned. The twinkle in her eye tells me she's considering it. Oh, no, Lurleen responds. I went last time. She's talking about our zoo outing. But you saw the monkeys out of their cages, I remind her. Wasn't that interesting? It was scary as hell, she says. I'll go. This from Amy, who feels like she owes me. I take a few seconds to study her physique. Her frame is broader than mine, and she is tall, but I think she's thin enough to fit through the narrow space between the gates. It's probably best that Lurleen is negative. She would never be able to squeeze her round form through the gap. I can't let you women stumble around in the dark, Wendell says. He, too, is overweight. I don't think you'll fit through the opening, I tell him. I'll stand watch, then. In the end, Wendell, Amy, and Eve decide to meet me at the VMF at 9.30. Determined to spend the night in my own home, I moved my few things and Edgar back in this morning. After the meeting, I hurry to my house to gather the necessary equipment for the incursion. I'm very careful about locking the door and resetting the alarm as I enter. Then I set out to inspect every closet and corner to make sure no one is lying in wait. When I feel secure, I gather flashlights, fresh batteries, and a crowbar for prying open dented car trunks. I check to make sure my phone is charged. Then I reset the alarm and lock the door on my way out. There's no point in being secretive. We park the cars right in front. To my surprise, after voicing her doubts, Lurleen has decided to tag along. As much as I don't want to be here, she says, I also don't want to miss out if something exciting happens. It's a bright night. The moon is close. Though it's cold, at least the wind isn't blowing. And an unexpected bonus. The VMF has security lights posted every 20 yards or so, so the flashlights are unnecessary. I grab the crowbar, and following the path that parallels the fence, we pick our way through the churned terrain, being careful of the deep ruts and jagged rises. Are we sure no one's here? Amy asks, her voice cautious. Why would they be? I respond, and there are no cars other than ours in the parking area. It's the kind of place you would expect there would be a security guard, she observes. Only on weekends, I tell her. At least that's what I assume. We arrive at the rear gate. I demonstrate entry by lifting the padlocked chain, separating the two posts, and slipping easily through the opening. When I look back at Wendell, Eve, and Lurleen, their gazes are dubious. Even Amy, who is not as skinny as I am, but is certainly thinner than the others, looks skeptical. I'll never in a million years fit through there, Lurleen says. Me neither, Wendell and Eve say simultaneously. This is the reason why, if the CCC is going to allow a group to meet on Monday nights, it should be concerned with dietary and exercise education. I'm not saying the victimized women shouldn't get together. Maybe they could meet in someone's house. Or, hey, Wendy's program, Caprock Outreach, could sponsor it, and they could meet in that building downtown. Just Amy and me, then, I say. Amy's tall, so she has to maneuver herself leg first and squat with her thighs spread in order to get under the chain. Meanwhile, outside the gate, Eve, Lurleen, and Wendell all light cigarettes. The odor of tobacco follows us as we move toward the right rear corner. Tell me again while we're doing this, Amy says. 
a co- part of a conversation, I explained, where Beth said that because of her, Paula Mercer is now in charge at the VMF. And what put her in charge is Gaiman Chomiak and Vera Penny disappearing. And now, with Hector Vasquez out of the picture, her other friend, Tansy, is in line to be head zookeeper. So you think Beth is killing her friend's bosses so they can get promotions? She asks, her tone incredulous. That's silly, Sandra. People don't commit murder over mud-caked tow trucks and retired buses, and I've been to the zoo. It's certainly not worth killing for. But power is, I comment. Paula and Tansy were nobodies with no prospects, and now they control two city departments. And what makes you think bodies are in trunks? She asks. I don't respond. I don't want to tell her that a hunch based on no more than the anxious darting of a mean woman's eyes has brought her to this unexpected location on this cold night. We pick our way over rough ground composed of gravel, concrete, and dirt. This place is so poorly maintained that it's a hazard. Someone could trip over this uneven terrain or slice a leg on the sharp, rusty edges of wrecked vehicles. The whole facility is a lawsuit waiting to happen. I should bring this up at the next town meeting. This is the area right here, I say, as we arrive at the couple of rows of beat-up sedans. What am I looking at, she wants to know. Ancient police cars? And there's the fire inspector's seal. Hey, remember when old Forrest Witt was the fire chief, and he used to come to the schools and talk about fire drills and how we'd all be burned to a crisp if we didn't pay attention? He was a real inspiration, I reply. Let's get started on this one right here. I stand at the rear of a 20-year-old Ford, a stripped police car badly dented on the left side. This is absolutely the most far-fetched and ghoulish notion you've ever come up with, she states. Prying open the trunk of a car isn't as easy as I thought it would be. I slip the flat end of the crowbar right beneath the latch and, putting all my weight behind it, press as hard as I can. And there's no give. Amy adds her weight to the process so that we're both straight-armed, leaning on the leveraging end, literally putting everything we have into it. I thought the rust and grit would make opening it easier, but obviously not. After about 30 seconds of us straining ourselves, a metallic squeak splits the air and the trunk pops open. That was practically impossible, she says, and there are at least 20 cars here. Maybe the rest will be easier, I say, hopefully. There's nothing in the trunk. The next one is easier, but also yields nothing. Another one and another one, with Amy complaining the whole time about how stupid this is and how much work it is and how she needs a cigarette. There's a skeleton in the fifth trunk. We stare down at it. Gray bones, clad in a burgundy skirt and cream blouse, tangled brown hair, more parody than real. Like on TV, Amy comments. I can't believe you were right. The clothes are in good shape. Polyester lasts forever, I say. Wanting to prove its veracity, I remove my glove, reach in, and, taking hold of a wrist, test the temperature, analyze the texture, and weigh its density. It feels real, but what do I know about it? Don't touch her, Amy tells me. What the hell do you think you're doing? The voice, coming from behind, makes us jump. With calm deliberation, I straighten from the trunk of the old police car and turn to face Paula. About 15 yards away, between the two white ladder trucks, she stands spread-legged, carrying a baseball bat. Is that the bat you used to put Tansy in the hospital? I ask. This place has a security system, Paula says. I knew the second you pulled up out front. We found Vera Penny, I tell her. I assume Gaiman's in another trunk. For someone so little and stupid, you sure are a lot of trouble, she responds. She raises the bat and comes right at me. I dodge and dash away. The bat crashes down on the rim of the trunk. Amy screams, drawing Paula's attention. Amy's not as fast as I am. And she just stands there, open mouth, while Paula turns and, lifting the bat again, goes after her. 
I race at Paula from the rear, flying onto her back, riding her, buying time for Amy to run away. But Amy doesn't move. She just stands there, wide-eyed like a terrified woodland creature. Run, Amy, run, I shout, and she does. Paula roars and jerks, trying to shake me off, but I'm going nowhere, until hands grab my coat from behind, yank me back, and throw me to the ground. And then Beth hovers over me, fist raised, ready to punch my face. I roll away as her fist comes down, smashing hard into the rough concrete where my head was. She howls and cradles her hand, which is streaming blood. I push myself to my feet as Paula raises the bat, holding it with two fists high above her head, a cavewoman with a club. Hold it right there, comes a shout from behind her. Two policemen rush at her, each grabbing one of her arms. They pull at her, trying to get her to release the bat. She slings them off like they're tiny pests and comes at me again. But she's so furious that I'm all she sees. She trips over Beth, who's kneeling, hunched, and crying over her injured hand. And the two hit the ground, a rolling, shrieking mass of coats and tangled arms and legs. Two more cops appear. It takes all four of them to subdue and cuff the two women. Joe Epps saunters from behind one of the ladder trucks, gives me a nod, and heads straight to the open trunk. The activity has reawakened the pain in my rib. It's sharp, like a blade poking my side. I need to take a couple of aspirin and be still for a while. The next day, in the paper and on the news, all the credit for finding the bodies of Vera Penny and Gaiman Chomiak goes to the Caprock PD, more specifically to Detective Joe Epps. I was right about all of it. The three women were murderers, conspirators. This is what happens when sociopaths find each other. I spend the next two days at home lounging in bed. I even eat there. I get what details are available from the news and from the Caprock Chronicle online. Trickles of facts form a picture. Mean-spirited and overly defensive to start with, Paula Mercer took every reprimand personally, every instruction as criticism. Guyman Chomiak, simply by doing his job, caused her to spend her days in a state of seething spitefulness, and Vera Penny's cheerful and friendly nature exacerbated Paula's resentment. Paula shared her feelings with Beth, who shot Guyman and Vera in their heads at the end of a workday. Then Paula and Beth put them in the trunks of the junked cars, and the happy result for Paula was that she became the boss where once she was the underling. Then Tansy joined the relationship, and when she, too, voiced rancor, Hector gave her the most unpleasant chores, and he was too demanding, and he drank too much, and was lazy. A similar plan surfaced, only this time, instead of Beth shooting him, she clobbered him on the head with a bat, probably the same bat Paula tried to use on me, and instead of stowing the body in a car, they fed it to the wolves. When I get out of bed and walk from one room to the other, my movements are those of an old woman, stiff and slow and slumped. I'm sore all over. It's been a physically taxing few weeks. The ache in my shoulder from when Paula threw me against the wall returns, and my head hurts where Beth bashed me. The pain in my rib throbs. I take aspirin every few hours, which seems to help. Depression seizes me. Ordinarily, I'd feel relief that the mystery has been solved, but instead I'm profoundly sad that three people died over something as petty as personality clashes in the workplace. I wonder how Catherine Chomiak and Dean Penny feel about this tragic closure. Tansy, Beth, and Paula are being held without bail. At this point, the release of information is sporadic. I call Joe. I want to know why they didn't put Hector in a car trunk like they did Guy and Vera, I tell him. It would have been way easier than driving to the zoo in a ladder truck and dumping him over the fence from a basket. Edgar gazes at me with doleful eyes. He wants his people back. He wants to go home. 
I'm in the middle of my lunch, Joe says, blatantly munching into the phone. Did you even think to ask? I want to know. He sighs. I'll call you back in a while. An hour later, he gets back to me. Tansy said it was because Hector liked the wolves, he informs. She said he wasn't that bad a guy, just annoying, so she wanted to do something nice for him. Also, they unlocked and unlatched the wolves' enclosure from the safety of the trucks, too. She didn't think they should be put down. And the other animals, I say, what was that about? Tansy said the elephants getting out honestly was an accident, he says. Beth freed the monkeys to teach Tansy a lesson. What lesson, I want to know. These aren't intelligent, reasonable people, Sandra. As close as we can figure, Tansy wasn't being grateful enough to Beth for murdering Hector. The two of them got into it, and then Beth freed the monkeys out of spite to make Tansy look bad in the job that meant so much to her. And the pigs, I ask. They were taken deliberately to be placed in your house. They wanted to teach you a lesson, too. And which one of them put Tansy in the hospital? Tansy said it was Paula, but hell, from the sound of things, the three of them beat up on each other all the time. None of it makes sense, I say. It kind of does, he replies. And what's with all this lesson teaching, I ask. Who goes around teaching people lessons? Look, Sandra, you're going to have to adjust to the notion that stupid, crazy people do stupid, crazy things. There simply is no rational explanation for what they did. I thank him and end the call with his unsatisfactory explanation echoing in my mind. Stupid, crazy people do stupid, crazy things. If this is true, then something fundamental in my psyche will have to change. I will learn to have to accept anomalies, let them go, and move on. I doubt my ability to do that. On Friday afternoon, I call Mayor Cantu, who surprisingly answers on the first ring. What can I do for you, Miss Furlow? You and the rest of the council members need to rethink your staffing policies, I tell him. You might actually be required to go to the trouble of interviewing and hiring qualified people to run the zoo and the VMF as opposed to simply letting the nearest grain of sand fill the hole. I'm not sure I understand the reason for this call, he says. Three people are dead because you ignored your responsibilities, I explain. I thought someone should point that out. Hold on now, that's not... Another call comes in. I cut the mayor off and take the incoming call. It's mom. Where are you? I ask. East Coast, Georgia, she replies. Is it nice? Very, she says. I heard they found the bodies of that couple that ran away together. Which they obviously didn't do, I remind her. I guess you were right and everybody else was wrong, she observes. It's not about me being right. It's about knowing what really happened, I say. And it's about how people believe something just because it's easier than finding out the truth. How involved were you in figuring it out? Did you put yourself in danger? This is said in a fretful, almost accusatory tone. I had nothing to do with any of it, I replied. I only know what's on the news. What are your birthday plans? She asks. It's not a major birthday that calls for a big celebration, I say. I told Hazel I'd be her driver while her car is in the shop. Doing somebody else a favor on your birthday, she comments. You're a very good person and I'm proud of you. Thanks, Mom, I say. I wish her happy travels and we say goodbye. Not once in the last ten years has she berated me, though I know at times she must be biting hard on the inside of her lips to keep her disappointment from flying out. She wants to be a grandmother. I wonder if the loss of what they never had is the reason they're gone so much. As to my birthday, I will have to pretend not to know something that I know, which will be difficult for me. Acting is not my gift. For someone who likes to know everything and control all aspects of whatever's going on, I will have to force myself to relax as my friends take over my day. At 10 o'clock on Saturday morning, I pick Hazel up at the dealership where her car is being serviced. Do you want me to take you home, I ask, or do you want to get coffee somewhere, or maybe you have errands? 
Home, please, she says, settling in, snapping her seatbelt over her coat. It's sure cold. Are you all right? We've missed you at the office. It's all over town how you helped bring down the gang of three, though of course the Caprock PD is grabbing all the glory. Gang of three is what they're calling Tansy, Beth, and Paula on the news and in the paper. I guess it's as good as anything. The main thing that irks me is that Karen was right, I tell her. Hazel doesn't know Karen. Or, considering all the party scheming I supposedly don't know about, maybe she does. Karen wanted me to go to the police, but I didn't. If Lurlene from Smokers hadn't called Pete from grief and told him we were at the VMF, and if Pete from grief hadn't mentioned it to Bill from addiction, who called Carol, who's also an addiction, and she's a cop, and if she hadn't called Joe Epps, I'd be dead right now. You have lots of friends looking out for you, she observes. Yes, I do. I agree. I drop her off at her house, promising to pick her up at one to take her back to her car. I head toward Catherine Chomiak's side of town. Saturday is a busy day for them, but maybe Catherine can find a few minutes for me. The car's in the driveway, and as I'm approaching their porch, I hear the loud voices of the two girls and their mom as they carry on a room-to-room conversation. I ring the bell. One of the daughters answers, a pretty blonde child in pink gymnastic clothes. Leaving the door open, she turns and scampers away, shouting, "'It's that lady!' I step inside, closing the door as Catherine Chomiak enters the living room from the kitchen. Just like last time, I'm stunned by the perfection of her features, the sheen of her hair, and the translucence of her complexion. The warm, starchy odor of macaroni and cheese wafts from the kitchen. It smells delicious. Oh, hi, she says. She doesn't come any further or ask me to sit. How are you feeling about everything, I ask. It's good to know what happened, she replies, but what happened isn't good. It's confusing to feel devastated and relieved at the same time. She tucks a brown strand behind her ear and looks longingly toward her kitchen. She doesn't appreciate the interruption. She doesn't want me here. I'm sorry to pop in unannounced, I tell her. I just wanted to make sure you're okay. They said he didn't suffer, she comments, as though that's supposed to make me feel better. My husband was put down like a horse, but that's okay because he didn't suffer. Not suffering's better than suffering, I say. I suppose, she responds. We both remain still, looking at one another from opposite sides of the room. Let me know if I can do anything for you, I tell her before the silence grows awkward. Realizing how often people issue the platitude without following through, I reiterate. I mean it. Like if you need me to drive the girls anywhere or to stay with them while you make funeral arrangements, I can help. I pull one of my cards from my pocket and, circling the couch, hand it to her. Okay, she says, slipping it into her pocket without looking at it. Though my offer is sincere, I know I won't be hearing from her unless I pursue the issue. I say goodbye and leave. I drive to Dean Penny's house. I ring the bell, but there's no answer. I peer through the side window to see if the little boy is hanging out, watching the door, but I see no one. I print, call me, on the back of one of my cards and stick it into the door jam. I doubt I'll be hearing from him. On the way home, I stop by the grocery store for the makings of macaroni and cheese. It's been years since I've eaten it. Mom used to call it comfort food. I make it for lunch, and it is excellent. And she's right, it is comforting. I have a 20-minute lie-down before going to pick up Hazel, who's waiting for me on the sidewalk in front of her house. She's holding a foil-covered platter out in front of her like it's an offering. When I pull up, she places it carefully in the back seat. The warm aroma of fresh cookies fills the car. What's with the cookies? I ask. I need to drop them by the CCC before we pick up my car, she explains, as a ruse to get me there. This lacks imagination. You usually don't get involved with things at the CCC, I say before turning the car in that direction. What's going on there that you need to bake cookies? A meeting to discuss a few things, that's all, she prevaricates. Hopefully they're going to discuss starting a health and fitness group on Monday nights, I say. That's it exactly. 
she replies, knowing it'll make me happy. I turn into the parking lot of the CCC. Usually on Saturday, there's only a single row of cars belonging to the people using the gym, but today the parking lot is almost full, and there are balloons floating above the front door. I park in one of the few remaining spots further away from the building than I ever park during my groups. This is going to take a few minutes, she says. You might as well come on in with me. We get out and head toward the door. Will they be in the large meeting room or the more formal parlor? It's the parlor. The laughter and gossip of many people reaches us as soon as we enter the building. My friends cheer and applaud as I follow Hazel into the room. Strung across the back wall is a colorful banner declaring, Happy Birthday, Sandra! Somebody starts singing Happy Birthday and then everyone joins in. I gaze around, open mouth and wide-eyed. I think I'm successful in fooling most of them. Someone hollers, Speech! and everybody calms as Mayor Cantu slips a microphone into my hand. You caught me completely by surprise, I begin, trying to sound convincing, and people usually hear what they want to hear. What a wonderful birthday party and what good friends. I'm deeply touched that you all went to this much trouble. Thank you. That's all there is to say, really, so I hand the microphone back to the mayor, who smiles and steps to my side. See, Sandra, in a town where you think nobody ever gets anything done, we sure got a lot done here today, including surprising you. Fearing that he might slip into one of his verbal meanderings, I give him one of my looks, which causes him to check himself and lower the microphone just as a birthday cake is rolled out. Punch is poured and distributed. Adjacent to the cake table is another table stacked with sandwiches, chips, potato salad, fried chicken, and Hazel's cookies. I stand by the mayor's side, beaming happily, when I see Donald from a distance, which makes me wonder if Wendy is here. I look around but don't see her. I guess my friends know how I feel about her. But the glimpse of Donald lifting cake to his mouth reminds me how much I still don't know about him. Where is he from? Why is he in possession obsession? He has even been cagey about what he does for a living, and he's a stranger to social media. Oh well, all these unknowns will give me something to think about. I'll figure him out eventually. Joe approaches as the mayor wanders off. Surrounded by people who think enough of me to give me a party, I remember how he told me I had no friends. Ha! So are you done nosing around for the foreseeable future? He asks. Can we all relax for a while? Why did Manny Vasquez give Paula money? I want to know. Or did you even bother to question her about it? She was blackmailing him, he answers. And before you ask over what, the matter's being handled quietly and privately. So you're just going to have to tolerate not knowing one of the details. Think you can do that? He told me it had something to do with his family, I say, asking, crooked business dealings, infidelity, someone involved in a hit and run? There are many possibilities. I said to let it go, he tells me. Turning toward the food table, he begins filling a plate. Janine comes to my side. So, she says, did he ask you out? He gave me a tiny bit of puzzling information, I answer, and then expected me not to get to the bottom of it. He obviously doesn't get you at all, she responds. I know, right? I say. Were you really surprised? She asks. Absolutely, I tell her. She gives my arm a squeeze and moves on. Ham and Millie approach. Millie has toned down the makeup and tamed her hair. She's almost back to her old self. Not quite, but in a month or so she'll have moved on to another fixation, another crisis. Her arched brow and smirk tells me that, yes, she broke into my house and piled random household objects in the middle of my bed. I give her a look right back that says I think she's crazy and evil. She tenses as Ham gives me a birthday hug. The party winds down after a while. I stand beside the door as people leave, telling them thanks and how much their friendship means to me. You weren't surprised at all, were you? Hazel questions as I'm driving her to retrieve her car. Yes and no, I say. I was surprised when I found out, which was a few days ago. That's the way these things usually go, she sighs. Anyway, happy birthday and thanks for the ride. And thank you for the party and cookies, I say.
She gets out, hugging her coat to her body as she hurries inside. So, Manny was being blackmailed. He, or someone in his family, committed an infraction so horrific that he was compelled to pay Paula to keep it quiet. What could it possibly have been? And how could Paula have known? Whatever it was, was it illegal or just embarrassing? Joe said it was being handled quietly and privately. I don't like secrecy. Handled how and by whom? I turn the car toward the part of town where Manny Vesquez lives. I think I'll just drive by his house and see what I can find out. This concludes the reading of Snooping Caprock. It's been suggested to me many times that I try my hand at a mystery series. This could be it, I suppose. I'm fond of Sandra, but am I fond enough of her to chronicle her adventures again and again? In her life, with her personality, she will always be stumbling across situations that stir her interest or indignation. Her dedication to the truth is admirable, and I love the way she's always trying to steer people, pretending to herself that she has no agenda when she very obviously does. And I enjoy Sandra's friends, who, for all their eccentricities and anxieties, are compassionate and perceptive. Also, I understand that the continuity of a series is comfortable for the reader. Anyway, it's something to consider. Until next time, this is Jen Waldo, and I hope you've enjoyed Snooping Caprock.